Well, I want to um, read with you from the book of Luke this morning. And we're going to read from the second chapter. Luke spends quite some time in the early chapters of his gospel account of the life of Jesus. Quite some time just laying out the events that took place around the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to um, a story that's not long after he was born, around six weeks later. And according to the law uh, that was laid down in, um, given to Moses many, many centuries earlier, a Jewish family would bring their child to the temple, present their child there, and also then give certain sacrifices as a way of bringing cleansing to the mother, having gone through the birth process, a way of consecrating the child to God, especially given that Jesus is the firstborn son in this household. And so all these things are taking place. And then something extraordinary happens in the meeting of this uh, family with this man who doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture, but only here, this man Simeon, this old godly man Simeon. And so we're going to read this story. Luke 2, verse 22. It says, When the time came for the purification of According to the law of Moses, they brought him, this is Jesus, the baby Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I want to then preach to you, given that it's the the last Sunday before Christmas, uh, Christmas Day itself, I want to preach to you into the theme of Christmas today. And it's actually one of the greatest challenges that a, a preacher faces in the course of a year, For many reasons, familiarity can be one of them, but one of the main reasons why it's such a a challenge is the fact that nobody approaches this neutrally. For good or ill, uh, the Christmas festival is the one major relic of Christianity that lives on in our culture when everything else actually has been largely diminished or stripped away. And it's the one thing that um, our society, in particular, I mean secular society, has clung on to in the depths of the darkest months, for us at least in the northern hemisphere. Uh, This celebration is meaningful to many. And that can be a good thing in that it brings us back to the birth of Jesus every year. But it can also be a difficult thing because what it means is that nobody approaches this season neutrally. 
for me as a preacher to want to communicate into this. I know that we all bring various emotions around Christmas. We all bring various preconceptions, sometimes some suspicions or frustrations. There are all kinds of things that are going on in the minds of the hearer as we begin to talk about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ at this particular time. And this is obvious when you think about the various uh, particularly wrong ways that people uh, react to and the emotions that they harbor about uh, Christmas in the round. And of course, I know that we're talking about two separate things. We have the festival as it's become, and we have the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you think about it just as an entity, the Christmas season, people react in all kinds of ways that are actually, in many ways, inappropriate given the reality of what we're talking about. And I'll just list to you a few. One of them is um, sentimentalism, that people bring an enormous amount of sentimentalism to this particular season. I think this is largely the fault of the Victorians and that particular era in the 1800s, Uh, when all the kind of ideas around Christmas just kind of blossomed into this great sentimental festivity. And, you know, this is perhaps typified by that hymn that emerged out of the United States um, in the 1880s, Away in a Manger. You think about the lines in that hymn where it says that the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Jesus, no crying he makes. Of course, this is just nothing but utter stupidity, because obviously the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was the Son of God does not mean that he was not an ordinary baby. And what we're doing is we're taking the reality of the birth of, of, of Jesus and then layering it with all this kind of, uh, this kind of schmaltz and glitz and, and all this kind of sentimentality that actually obscures the grimy reality of what took place in the first Christmas when Christ was born and obscures it so that we can no longer fully appreciate or understand the reality of it. So there's sentimentalism. There's also just indifference. I think a lot of people bring um, a sense of you know, distance to, you know, we can celebrate Christmas, but when we think about the original meaning behind Christmas, many people just think it's, it's, it's no more real, no more true, historically speaking, than the Nordic myths and I can appreciate ancient myths about ancient gods as much as any person that can be fun to listen to. But a lot of people treat Christmas in exactly the same way. They think the birth of Jesus, well, you know, most of this was just complete invented uh, non-historical fantasy and fiction. And so there's this kind of indifference to it. Well, we'll, we'll embrace Christmas as a festival, but not really so much the birth of Jesus. Another reaction that people bring is just ignorance. You know, if you were to survey the average person in the street, I think that you would encounter an enormous amount of ignorance about the true meaning of Christmas, such that many people would not know who Jesus is. They wouldn't know what Christmas is truly about, or what, in particular, what Christ came to accomplish on earth, why he was born. And then, perhaps more worryingly, I think in this day and age, we also increasingly are experiencing a kind of antagonism or even a hostility around Christmas. And For some reason, the Christmas season, perhaps because it is the one living relic of Christianity in a secularizing world, for for that reason, it's become the lightning rod of those who oppose a religious agenda and those who want to kind of obliterate religion from public life. And so increasingly, it's, it's unacceptable to even use the term Christmas because it's seen as somehow in opposition to, you know, the agenda of diversity. And, you know, this is just utter idiocy, of course, but the idea that someone can be offended by the use of the word Christmas. But this is the way people think these days. And really what's under it is a powerful agenda to to really oppose Christianity and all that it stands for. And so for all these reasons, 
Christmas is a very loaded term. It brings all these conflicting and contradictory emotions into, the, into, into those who are listening. And so it's a great challenge. And my, my purpose and our great need is really to look at this in a fresh way. I think this is what we need. And the reason why I say that is twofold. One is for those of you who are not Christian. I think if you can somehow see through all the nonsense that has accumulated around Christmas and see what we're really celebrating, I think you'll begin to recognize that what we are talking about here is a world-changing event. Something which, even at a very historical level, even if you do not have faith, is one of the most important events in all history because of the ongoing impact of it, the arrival of this particular person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even, even if you were to approach this in the most neutral way that you possibly can, you have to give it due consideration. But I also want to say, that, look, this is true for us as Christians also. I think in a sense there's something wrong with the Christian who for whatever reason can no longer feel and, and truly perceive and understand in their gut the wonder of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to see this with fresh eyes. You know, the Lord is given to us as a gift. That's what it says in John 3 and verse 16, the famous verse in John's Gospel. It says that, the, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that Jesus was his gift to humanity. And you know, you'll have encountered many times that experience where you give a gift to someone, the reaction is disappointing. I think there's a sense in which, of course, God rightly has expectations of us as we contemplate the gift of Jesus, that our hearts are moved, that our minds perceive, that we understand and we see this as we ought to see it. That there's something wrong with the Christian who doesn't experience some measure of wonder, some measure of, of, of unbelievable astonishment and awe and joy at the reality of his coming. And this is why we need fresh eyes to see this. Now, this is also why I want to focusing on this particular man, Simeon. Simeon had none of these, there were none of these complications um, these, the accumulation of all this detritus around the Christmas festival. None of that existed at the time. In fact, nobody really knew who Jesus was. This baby was born in anonymity. There was no great celebration of his arrival. And so Simeon is a very unusual man in the Gospels because he uniquely, on that day in Jerusalem, he was the only person, apart from his parents, apart from Christ's parents, who sees something special in this baby. Now, here's what happens. This man, we know very little about him. I suspect he's an old man by this point. A godly man, an old man living in Jerusalem. And here's what happens. It says in verse 26 that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. Now, of course, all the Jewish people had an expectation of the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, to come and bring salvation. But this particular man so had so heard God speak to him that he knew in his heart that he would see this child before he would die, before Simeon would die. And so something strange happens to him on this particular morning in Jerusalem. He wakes up and the Holy Spirit begins to speak to him in some way. We don't know how, but he feels a compulsion to go to the temple. And so it says in verse 27 that he came in the Spirit. This is the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God that many people who are followers of, of Christ, who are Christians, will know what this, this experience from time to time in your life when you feel like you could not have done anything else. God was leading you to do a particular thing. And so it says he came in the Spirit 
into the temple. And when the, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So here they arrive in an anonymity, just two parents with their baby boy. It says Simeon took him. Now, I suspect they may have been slightly anxious at this point. A random man comes in and grabs their baby off him, but he took Jesus. There's some recognition in him. He sees this baby and says, he's the one. He, he takes him off their hands and he blessed God, it says, and he begins to speak in this extraordinary way about the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this, I'm trying to help you to see, is for us a perfect example of the kind of way in which we ought to be moved and to react to the reality of the birth of Jesus. And we don't fully understand why this man, except that what Luke tells us about him, that he says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He tells us three things. that he, was, he says he was righteous and devout. He's a godly man. He's been walking with God his whole life. He tells us he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's a patient man. He understands that God works on a different time scale to the way men work. And so he's in tune with the working of God and that he was a a man upon whom that was the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us. He was a very spiritual man. This is all we know about him. But somehow God has set apart this man so that he will uniquely experience and encounter Jesus as a baby in a very profound way in the way that Luke relates to us. And so what I want to do is to help you to see the kinds of reactions that Simeon um, exemplifies and that come out of his life as he sees this baby in temple that day as an example to us, as a provocation to us about what it truly means to cherish and celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me show you a few things. The first is this. That when Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms, the first and most prominent reaction is one of absolute delight. It says that he took him up in his arms and blessed God. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. And of course, to say that he blessed God, this language actually means a kind of ecstatic overflow of joy. To, a blessing is very much um, synonymous with the language of happiness. And so this man, when he blessed God, it's kind of this overflow of joy and happiness and delight when he takes this baby in his arms. Now listen, the, the happiness that Simeon experiences here is not something normal. It's not the kind of happiness that you might have experienced when you've held a newborn baby or a young baby. And I have held babies on many occasions, not least my own. And there is an exceptional joy you experience in the miracle of holding a child. And this is not what Simeon's encountering on this day. Nor is it just the happiness that you and I would have anticipated around this Christmas time of just the regular enjoyments of the good things in life. You know, we were anticipating a Christmas with lots of cake and mince pies and wine and turkey and whatever else. And we're not talking about just normal happiness. What we're talking about here is a kind of overwhelming spiritual joy that kind of bubbles up from inside him and bursts out in this exclamation of praise to God where he says these things. And listen carefully. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And he means the baby Jesus that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is overwhelmingly happy when he sees Jesus. Now, why does he experience this delirium? I don't think this is a great mystery. It's obvious when you think about it. It's because this is the moment that he has been waiting for his entire life. This is what Lucas told us about him, that he was a man waiting for the consolation of Israel, 
and who had received this revelation that he would see the Lord's Christ before he was born. And so it's almost like, you know, if you, if you build a dam on a, on a great river, what will happen is that the water will accumulate in an enormous reservoir of millions or billions and billions of gallons of water, enormous weight and pressure to bear on that wall. If the wall were to crack, then the, the, the water would overflow in a great gush, a destructive gush. And in a sense, what Simeon experiences here is the weight of pent-up hope, the weight of pent-up anticipation, expectation, desire to see what God would do. And in this moment when he sees the child, it bursts out of him as he blessed God and, and raises up this celebration of joy, this delight to God about having seen this baby. And it's something that I, you, know, you see from time to time. In the life of someone who's wanted something their whole life, who finally receives that thing. Uh, just this week, I read a little story about an elderly woman in her 90s who, I think it was during the Second World War, had won the highest mark nationally for her recital in her piano examination. But she didn't receive a medal because it was wartime and they didn't have the materials or the, or the time to actually make this thing for her. And so writing to one of the great societies in London, she finally received her medal in her 90s. You know, there's so much joy. She's waited for this entire, her entire life. I've met people who've been waiting for a spouse for, for sometimes for decades and finally met that person. I've been waiting for a child and unable to get pregnant, finally have that child or waiting to get the job or the breakthrough or something they want in life. And it finally comes. And certainly Simeon is experiencing something like that kind of joy. But it's more than just, it's more than just something personal to him. Because what he sees in this baby is world changing, world-shaking implications, which is why he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which is every person on the planet who is not a Jew. And he says, for, and glory to your people, Israel, to the Jewish people. And Simeon sees in this moment, in this moment of revelation, this, this is why he has such enormous outburst of joy. He sees the significance of this child. Now, what I want to say to you is that in a sense, this is an experience every Christian knows to some measure. Your life before you met Jesus would have been marked by and characterized by unfulfilled longings. It's one of the hallmarks of one of the things that draws people to Jesus is that before meeting him, you knew certain desires that were unfulfilled in your life, longings that were not satiated or satisfied. And that in finding Christ, you found the resolution to your desires. You found the one your heart was made for. You found the one who you, who, who you were born to worship and who would bring fulfillment to your life. And so you can say with Simeon, my eyes have seen your salvation. That's what it means to become a Christian in a sense. Your eyes are opened. You see Jesus in new light. Nobody is a Christian who hasn't, hasn't had this experience in some way. And everyone who is a Christian has had this experience. And it's not just something that happens to you just once at the moment of conversion. This is something who, for the person who walks with God, who seeks to know God, who pursues God in life, this experience happens to you time and time again. That it may be as you come to worship with God's people on a Sunday or you hear the word of God being taught to you or you encounter God in, his, in the word of God or as you read the scriptures in your own uh, time or just unexpectedly your eyes are opened and you see Christ afresh at various points in your life and you can think of key moments in your life when you saw him again. 
as it were. You perceive him in his beauty and your heart is flooded with the Holy Spirit-born transcendent joy. This is what Simeon's experiencing. This is what every Christian is to some degree familiar with. To greater or lesser extent, I grant you, but every Christian knows something of this moment of my eyes have seen your salvation. My prayer and wish for you this Christmas is that you, like Simeon, will see this again. That even if you know, everything else in, about this Christmas has been made a little bit worse this particular year, but the main thing is still there, the gift of Jesus to us. May your heart be open to see him in a fresh way and to experience the delight which Simeon experiences when he perceives the gift of Jesus. That's the first thing. Here's the second. He also experiences what I want to describe as peace. And this is really just using his own language because he says, it says here that he took, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He experiences a profound sense of peace when he holds this child. Now, in order to understand this peace, this gift of peace, this shalom that comes from God, we need to step back and ask, well, where does peace come from? What, what is it that, that characterizes real peace? The Bible has a lot to say about this experience of peace. It's one of the key things that we need in our hearts. But what is it? Now, I want to just rule out what it is not. It's not a, a temporary ex- escape from reality. For many, there are, you know, life is full of stresses and anxieties and, and things that are outside of our control. And one of the ways that we naturally seek to find refuge from that and, and to find comfort and to find peace despite all that's going on around us is we seek temporary um, moments of relief through entertainment, through pleasure-seeking, through drug-taking, through alcohol, through some kind of escape. Um, some of them good things, some of them bad things, you know, all kinds of things. But fundamentally what we do is we self-pacify, don't we? Just as you can give a baby a dummy or a, a bottle of milk to pacify the child, we, we never really grow out of that. Life is full of stresses, and we naturally want to find ways to pacify ourselves. But of course, what you know is it's short-lived. It doesn't really bring peace that settles in your heart or in your spirit. So we're not talking about that kind of self-pacification. Neither am I talking here about peace, which is really the attempt, which is increasingly something that's talked about in our modern world as anxiety is on the rise. Um, You see peace that is really an attempt to kind of gain mastery of your own mind. That there are many books about anxiety these days. I've read a number of them written by secular authors. And one of the things that's, that's frequently and repeatedly commended is the idea that you can't control anything out there, but the one thing you can control is the mind that you possess. And if you find ways of mastering your own mind through various means that are on offer today, then you can find peace. And of course, I, I think there's some truth to this to a certain degree, but really, at the worst end here, what we're talking about is something like self-deceit. Because what we're engaging in with here is a a desire to detach from reality. We're saying the world is full of suffering, chaos, things that are outside of my control, all kinds of mess around me. And the only way that I can know peace is by really just detaching myself from that, by finding a bubble of sanctuary of peace within my own mind where I say I can't control anything out there, but what I can control is my own reaction to circumstances and so I can find peace. Really, biblical peace isn't like that because it's distinct from this in this way. Yes, we acknowledge that there's chaos and and all kinds of suffering in the world and stresses and causes for anxiety all around us. 
But biblical peace isn't a detachment from it, a retreat into your own mind. The peace that Simeon experiences here, you know, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He sees suffering in his own life. He sees suffering among his people. He's waiting for consolation. And the reason why he experiences peace in this moment is because suddenly his faith in God becomes this, this bedrock experience where he, said he can connect his own faith with the trustworthiness of God. This is what biblical peace is. It's finding safety and security in the knowledge that God is totally and completely in control of all things. He's a sovereign God and that he is true to his word. That's what biblical peace is. Now, I would say that this is the thing that's most needed in our age. We live in a day and an age in which many of the things that we thought were stable and that could bring us security in life are actually fragmenting all around us. The normal joys and rhythms of life, the things that we rely upon to find joy in life, they've been taken away from us. And then at a much greater level, the things we worship, and I think particularly about science and medicine, have shown to actually be less capable than we thought they were. And of course, that has a massively destabilizing effect upon our well-being because if we rely upon these things for some measure of security in life and they're shown to be weaker than we thought they were and less stable and less dependable than we thought they were, the result is instability, anxiety, all kinds of insecurity. It's true also in relationship to the governments over us. One of the reasons why you can experience a measure of peace living in a country such as ours is that we live in a world which is governed by just laws and which, in which we have a government that largely, though not perfectly, but largely seeks, is benevolent, seeks the good of, of the people. And of course, this has been governed historically by what's called the social contract, the idea that, that we give up a certain amount of freedom to a government over us so that that government can then offer us security and peace and protection. And of course, all of this has, been, has, been, has somewhat been pulled apart because now we're experiencing the effects of a government massively overstepping the line, as it were, taking away all kinds of freedoms, telling us where we can go, who we can meet with, how we can live our lives, all in the name of keeping us safe. And of course, this has a massively destabilizing effect upon our well-being because suddenly we're infantilized and we're treated like we're children, unable to make decisions for ourselves and, and also aware of the creeping uh, power and authority of the state over us. And so everything that we thought we could rely upon in this world has shown to be fragile shown to be flawed, imperfect. And so all these things have a, 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 the effect of bringing insecurity, of bringing anxiety among, among common people. Now, what I'm trying to help you to see is what P- Simeon experiences here when he says, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It's really a peace that transcends his circumstances. Actually, nothing has changed in his circumstances. The consolation for Israel that he'd hoped and longed to see hasn't really taken place at this point. All that he's seen is the potential of it in the arrival of this child. But for him, that's enough. And I want, you know, this is how you have to understand this peace that he experiences in this particular moment. He says it's a peace that is according to your word. In other words, what he's saying is, Lord, You have been proven to be trustworthy. The promises that you gave in Scripture hundreds of years earlier about the coming of the Savior Jesus to come and deliver us have been proved true and now I've seen it. The things you spoke to my own heart that I would see this child before I die, you are good to your word. And a person whose faith has been vindicated, my eyes have seen your salvation, he says. The person whose faith has been vindicated because they say God is trustworthy and faithful is a person who can navigate just about anything that life throws at them 
and can know an unwavering sense of peace in the God who is over them, who is in control and who seeks their good. This is where the Christian gets his peace from. It's not from an untroubled life. All of us together are facing all kinds of troubles at this present moment. It's not from having a well-heeled life with the right job, spouse, kids, you know, opportunities. It's not from these things. This is not what it lies at the, the roots of our peace. Peace for the Christian is being rightly related to the God over you. Having a faith in him that cannot be shaken. My eyes have seen your salvation. And my wish and prayer for you today is that you'll experience this kind of peace, friends. I want to show you one last thing about the way that Simeon reacts here. There is this ecstatic outburst of joy, this delight in the arrival of Jesus. There's this peace where you say, I know God is good to his word. And all these things ought to characterize us. But there's a third element, which in some ways is more profound. That Simeon experiences a kind of humble reverence and awe. Now, why does he feel this way? as he holds this child. What happens is something interesting. He's holding this baby. His heart bursts out in praise to God as he perceives who this child is. But then he sees something extra. He begins to see all that this child would accomplish in his life. And it evokes a sense of awe within him, I'm certain, and reverence for this particular baby, this baby Jesus. Now, In a sense, this is something you can encounter when you hold any child, any baby, any newborn baby. You hold them and you have to have a cold heart indeed not to feel a sense of awe at the miracle of life and more than that, at the potential that is wrapped up in that child. When I've held each of my babies, I've looked at them and thought, this child will and has the potential to change the world in some way, whether in a small way or a great way, a child is wrapped up with potential and will change my life at a very, at, at, the, at the minimum, but will certainly begin to have, have the ripples that run out from this child's life. A child has capacity, has God-given dignity, has the image of God in them to change the world. And this, this is true of any child. But Simeon experiences something totally unique when he holds this particular baby, this child Jesus. He begins to see unfolding before him, before his spiritual eyes, as it were, the very things that Jesus would accomplish. And so he says to Mary, he particularly turns to the mother and says to her these last words that we read. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I want to explain each of these phrases to you. He says, first of all, that this child is going to be one who will split the world in two, effectively, is what he says. When he says this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, he's saying that Christ will come and bring division. Now, of course, I know that there are many people who can be described as divisive or divisive characters in history. And we think about even in our recent history of politicians. You know, we, there's a, there was a prime minister in, in Britain when I was a child called Margaret Thatcher, who is a divisive character to this day. I've never seen a politician who can evoke more emotion, either of devotion, those who who love her and all that she stood for, or of hostility and anger. And I've seen otherwise friendly people become 
deeply emotional and antagonistic one to another as they discuss the reality of this woman and what she did to our country, uh, for good or ill. And the same is true right now across the pond in the United States, that we, you know, um, one of the most divisive figures we've seen in recent decades, the, this outgoing president who is who's truly divided people. And certainly at some level this is true of Jesus. When, when Simeon says he's appointed for the fall and rising of many, he's speaking of a, divi- a division that will come. But he's not just saying, of course, that Jesus is a divisive character, which he is, but he's not just saying that. He's saying more than that. He's saying that Jesus is the dividing line. This is something Christ affirms about himself in his teaching, and which has proved true in history. That really humanity can be split in two between those who are for or against Christ. Those who, 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 are, who, who are caused to fall on account of Christ, who are raised up because of Jesus Christ. And this is Christ's destiny. He comes into the world and he's like God's axe. An axe has one job and it's to split things in two. And Jesus is God's axe. God's act, God wields this, this child who becomes a man and he splits humanity in two. He's appointed, Simeon says, for the fall and rising of many. And Simeon says, Simeon sees this about this child, that this child is the dividing line, that his influence among humanity will have universal significance, global significance, and eternal significance because he divides humans one from another. Then he says a second thing. He says, also that he's for a sign that is opposed. This word opposed means spoken against. It speaks of the rejection that Jesus would encounter. Of course, it's not something that Simeon wanted for this child. It's not something that that his mother wanted for him. But it is the hallmark of the life of Jesus that as he began his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing the sick and casting out demons and all the rest of it, immediately he began, immediately he was rebuffed even by his own friends in the village in which he grew up, one of the first things he encounters in the next chapter of of Luke's gospel is that his own people turn against him. And again and again, as Jesus presses forward in the will of God, what does he encounter? He encounters resistance. And to this day, this is what we see about Jesus. Jesus is not just a divisive person, but he's also someone who is a sign that is opposed, someone who's spoken against, someone who is consistently and passionately rejected by many, which is one reason why you ought to take note of him, why we ought to be interested in him. He says, more tragically, this third thing about him, he says that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, he says that this, this boy is going to break your heart, Mary. And he's speaking, of course, in some shaded way, some kind of um, riddle. He's seeing the death of Jesus, even as he's holding him as a baby. Every child dies, we know that, but eventually. But he's seeing something unique here. He's seeing the fact that this, this child will die a premature death, that his own mother will, will have a, a broken heart over him. Of course, it's the great, I think probably the greatest grief a person can ever experience in life is burying their own child. And and Simeon says that that's something Mary will encounter. But of course, to understand this, you have to see, of course, that this baby was not given to Mary to just fulfill her longings for motherhood. God-given longings nonetheless, but that's not why this baby was given to Mary. This baby is given to Mary on loan, as it were to prepare him for his greater destiny, the fact that he would have to die and that his death would have global 
importance and significance that would resound through history and matter more than anything else for you today. And he finally says this, that Jesus is the one who will reveal hearts. He says so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And I think what he's intimating here is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who shines the spotlight. You know, so far we've so far thought about him, who he is, and what he means to us. But now the spotlight turns upon our own own hearts and it it presses upon us this fact. And this is something where I want us to, 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 to leave this account. It presses upon us this fact that ultimately Jesus is the revealer of what is going on in our hearts. That it's our reaction to Jesus that matters. That Christ has come to bring to light the secret things in the hearts of men. He's really intimating here Christ's role as the judge of mankind. The one who will ultimately, before whom we'll stand on the final day and give an account as to how we lived and also what we made of him. That Jesus is that one who brings revelation. And so friends, what I hope you can see as we've considered all that this man experienced when he held this baby Jesus is that this, this event, this arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ on planet Earth is not, as it's so often conceived, a kind of twee or cute or fluffy or glitzy event. It's none of those things. But that really this is something which ought to evoke awe in our hearts. We experience the joy that Simeon had. We experience the peace that Simeon had. But more than that, we experience awe because behind the crib of this baby looms the cross where he would have to die on behalf of mankind. And this is not a morbid reality. I know that it could sound morbid to speak about the death of Jesus even as we're celebrating his birth. But the Bible doesn't speak about his death as a morbid reality. It speaks about it as the reason why we can have joy, the reason why we can have peace, the reason why we can celebrate. Behind the crib we we see the cross. And friends, I want, I would, my prayer to God for you is that as we celebrate Christmas in this unique way on this particular year, you'll see Jesus in a fresh way. That something of what God did in Simeon's heart, by the Holy Spirit, he'll do in your heart, maybe for the first time. Because you could not say honestly that you've been a Christian up to this point. Maybe you'll see him for the first time and realize the gift of Jesus to you. Or maybe you'll see it for the umpteenth time but may you see it with fresh eyes the wonder of the gift of this boy who would become this man for us amen let's pray oh father god we thank you that you are a generous father And we encounter your generosity in so many ways in our day-to-day lives. This is your grace to us. But your generosity has never more clearly been seen than in the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. I ask, first of all, for forgiveness. As we confess the fact that we are so often apathetic and dull to this great reality. But then we plead your grace and open our hands and our hearts and say, Lord, 
meet us afresh this season. Cause us to love your Son with a deeper love and to celebrate him truly. I ask it in his name. Amen.